I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 111th episode of Talking Golf History, and the history of Live Golf with Alan Shipnuck. Like live, hate live, indifferent to live. I personally think Alan's new book, Live and Let Die, is a must-read for any golfer who watches professional golf. In this book, Alan has captured not only the early history of rival golf tours, but has done a deep dive into the organizations and all of the main characters in this winding and ongoing drama. Today on our show, for the most part, we stick to the history of these threats to the golfing establishment and the formation of Liv, and finish off with where does this all go from here. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode, but there is only one way to find out. And now, Alan Shipnick and the history of Live Golf. Alan, thank you for joining us on Talking Golf History. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. I, okay, before we start, I, I figured um, if, before we dive in this history, can you tell us a little bit about the Fire Pit Collective? Yeah, it's you weren't uh, ready for that question. I, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, but I'm, I'm, it's like asking about my children. I can talk about it all yeah. day. Uh, you know, Matt Janella and I, we go back to the mid 90s together at Sports Illustrated. He was the one of the photo editors, and I, I had just come out of UCLA and was hired as a staff writer. And so we've always been friends, we've traveled the world, played a lot of golf together. Uh, sometimes on the down low because Jerry Tardy, when he was running golf, I just thought, you know, it was like fraternizing with the enemy. And so Matt and I, like we had to take some of our trips in secret. Um, but many of our conversations were about, you know, if we were in charge, we would do it this way and that way. And and these old Princeton guys don't know what the hell they're doing. And um, so the rubber finally met the road. You know, we we were kind of disenchanted with the the state of corporate golf media, and both looking to, um, you know, I got any younger. I mean, both of us. I had my fiftieth birthday recently. Matt's a couple years older than I am. It's kind of now or never. So we just decided to take the plunge and start our own thing. And, and you know, we just try and do long form, kind of elegant storytelling, which is a little bit of a dying art um both typed and 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 video storytelling and of course we podcast as well and uh we're two plus years into it i mean it's obviously a very challenging industry you look at all the layoffs and attrition from the athletic to the new york times and the la times shutting down their sports pages to you know layoffs uh, across the board so it it's not it's not easy, but it's very rewarding to have our own control, our own destiny, and have total control and autonomy over the content. You know, it's both Matt and I in, in different ways. When he was at Golf Channel and and me at SI and and especially at Golf Magazine, just felt like we couldn't always do the stories we wanted to do because of our, our corporate overlords. And now we can, so that that's awesome. Now you're your own overlords. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we kind of joke like like we're the old white guys now because our whole career there was always this 
you know, these older editors who were, were kind of imposing upon us their beliefs and their wishes and the way they saw the world. And it didn't exactly jive with ours. And um, so, you know, now we're, we're in that position of power. It's kind of disorienting, but, um, you know, we definitely are trying to be a little more uh, <laughs> uh, progressive and a little more open-minded and, and, and bottom line is we're always looking for good stories to tell. Now, I will dive into the, the Phil and the unauthorized biography here in a little bit, but just from a timing standpoint, I mean, that really helped. I think, well, it, Fire Pit was in my memory, in my collective memory prior to that, but was that a big pivot point for Fire Pit? I mean, was it the gift that kept giving or the curse yeah, that haunted so, you? <laughs> you know, it depends on how you look at it. Yeah. Oh, no. It's from a uh, brand awareness and everything else. I mean, that really launched us. You know, it, it's probably the excerpt we put out where, you know, Phil correctly diagnosed his Saudi patrons as scary mofos and all that like that. That's probably no matter what we do is going to be the most read, most clicked, most shared story that we'll ever publish on our, our website. Like the the traffic was just unprecedented, and uh, so yeah, that that was that. How was early good. was that in to that the fire pit? Do you do you remember? Yeah, we were about. I mean, the exact start date is is hard. We were probably four months in. So relatively new brand, right brand new yeah and unplanned really i mean the call like oh, yeah, you, you know sure. we'll get into came out of the blue yeah yeah i mean and it, even you know talking about so i was already working on the mickelson book as things were were deteriorating at golf magazine and part of it was you know the guy who owns it has a very particular view that everything should be kind of rosy. Like it's a promotional vehicle for the game and for the other properties. And that's fine. I mean, I think that appeals to certain fans, but the Mickelson book was always going to be really have, you know, I got, I think of if, if I'm, if, if I'm a pitcher, I want to have a fastball, a curveball, a changeup, a knuckler, a slider, you know, I want to have different speeds. And that's how that book was. There was a lot of celebratory stuff about all the great things Phil's done, but there was also a lot of messiness in his life, and it, it got into it in a very honest, clear-eyed way. And so I knew that even get, writing the book that I wanted was going to be challenging. That was part of why I left, was so I could just I could just tell that story without any, um, any static. And so for sure, we were always going to excerpt the book on firepitcollective.com, but of course – it's really interesting because four or five people read that manuscript whose opinion I really value, including Michael Bamberger and others. And we always knew that, that, that what Phil told me about the Saudis and about live golf was, was going to create a stir, but none of us anticipated it would be the earthquake that it was. Cause when you read it in the whole context of the book, you can kind of see it coming and you have all the, all the backstory when you just cut and paste it into an excerpt with, without it's a hammer. Yeah, without the foreplay, really. Then it's like, um, it, it just, and so, yeah, it was interesting because these are very bright golf minds. And it, we we're all surprised that it just went as crazy as it did. Um, but, it was, yeah, the way the whole thing played out uh, was, was quite interesting. And, yeah, to, but to go back to your original question, it definitely helped launch the fire pit. So I've been arguing that we live in the most interesting times in the history of professional golf. I've said it many times on Twitter I've also argued that books will be written about this subject for as long as people play golf. Like this first, I mean, true 
invasion into professional golf of a competitive a competitive tour coming against the the PGA Tour. What set you down this path? I mean, how did you get to a point where you were like, we need to write, I need to write about a book about Liv? You know, it, it happened very quickly. So the Miggleson book came out last May, you know, 18 months ago or so. And his comments to me sent Phil into exile. He decided to return to public life at Live London, the, the first Live golf tournament. I actually had not planned to cover it. It was the start of summer with my kiddos, and I was going to be at the U.S. Open the next week. But with Phil coming back, I just felt like I had to be there. And so because it was so last minute, I flew in the morning of the first round, um, went right to the golf course, and Phil finished his round. I went to his press conference. I was just standing there. I got bounced out of there by some live golf security goons. There's a picture that some people have seen where Norman, Greg Norman. I think it's still your Twitter background, right? It's such a hysterical. (laughs) Find Alan on Twitter and just look at his background photo. People thought it was Photoshopped. It's so funny. I mean, the scowl on his face is devoid of any soul, you know? And, um, and I didn't know what to expect out of live golf. I don't think anybody did, but that London tournament was impressive in that, the build out was first class. I mean, it felt like a big time event, all the trappings, all the concerts, the fans were into it. The pro-am was energetic. You had his excellency, Yasir Al-Ramayan dapping guys up on the first tee. Um, and I think there was a feeling like this, this might, this thing might just blow away in the wind real fast. You got to London, you realize this is, these are serious people and this is a serious enterprise. And during that tournament, they announced Bryson and Patrick Reed, those were huge signings because those guys were young in their prime, major winners. Somewhat recently, I mean, at that you, you know, both have won a major one recently than Roy McIlroy, you know what I mean, or Jordan Spieth for that matter. And so they were giving up a lot potentially by go, uh, you know, the long time horizons on the PGA Tour. So I was like, wow, this is serious. And I was flying home, uh, well, not home. I was flying to Boston from London for the for the U.S. Open at the Country Club. I was on the Wi-Fi. I sent a note to my my um, my agent, who I've had my whole career, and I said, "What do you think about a golf a book about live golf? Because there's a lot of energy here, and it's, this is feeling like the biggest golf story of the century to me. You know, at least non-Tiger Woods division." And he's like, "Oh, funny you mention that because I've been talking to Jofi, who's my that's the name of my editor, Simon Schuster, and they had already decided that I had to write this book, and I was kind of late to the party, and so the week of." of the U S open. I took the train down to New York. So the three of us could have lunch. It was billed as a celebratory lunch because, you know, around the, the, the Mickelson book, but they had this contract they presented to me at lunch and it was like, was it for like $140 million? Like they gave, you know, some of these guys. It was, yeah. It was piff money. for. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure then, it wasn't paid by piff. I'll guarantee yeah, you that. <laughs> yeah, no, sadly, sadly, uh, golf writers are not compensated. Like, the actual golfers, but it was, it was a nice offer. But more than that, I just felt like this is a once in a lifetime story on some level because of the upheaval and the disruption, but also this incredible cast of characters, like every golfer who's mattered for the last 30 years got sucked into this, whether it's Tiger, Phil, Rory, Brooks, Bryson, DJ, like go on down the list. And then of course you have Norman and and his decades-long vendetta against the PGA Tour, like that's super compelling. You have Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman lurking in the background, and you have these these huge themes that transcend golf. I mean, it's like Shakespeare, 
the the greed the the revenge the betrayal the the how legacies have been destroyed how how reputations have been altered like there's it's it was just such a rich story and there was so much energy around it and honestly i'd have been in the middle of it now for a long time because at that point you know i think for some people mickelson's quotes to me was the beginning of the live era because it, We'll talk about this, but the Premier Golf League had been knocking around for years and years, and the, the Saudis were attached to that as investors. And so there'd been all this noise. They'd never been able to launch. And I I personally, and I think everyone, a lot of other people in golf, had kind of tuned it out. Like, okay, the Premier Golf League is just this this idea that's kind of fizzled. It's um, I, All this stuff happened in the shadows. So when the Saudis pulled their money and their support from the P- Premier Golf League and decided to go at it alone, nobody knew it really except for the players and the agents. It was it remained very mysterious process to the rest of us. And so, you know, Phil kind of what he told me offered kind of this primer on the whole state of play. And so I was in the middle of that. And then obviously I was in the middle of that first live golf tournament getting bounced out and that, the photo Norman that went around the world. And I was like, okay, I'm already up to my eyeballs. You're knee deep. Uh, <laughs> at least knee deep. Like might as well just keep going. And so, um, it turned into an incredible challenge and a, a, a monster project because there were so many subplots and so many protagonists and it was all changing and evolving in real time. So it was definitely the hardest book I've written, but probably the most fun because it was just so many, every time you'd pull on one thread, you know, the whole sweater would, would come apart and then you'd have to put it back together and just like, and it's uh, always changing. Always. It, and still is. I mean, you know, like, there's just an endless number of news breaks. And so it made it fun. Yeah, it's crazy. I, you know, it's funny. I'm sure you get this, but I, you know, I won't lie. I received, I'd say numerous private messages and emails from people that weren't happy of this choice of podcast for talking golf history. (laughs) And I, I said, like live, hate live. We live in historic times, right? And, you know, it doesn't matter really now if it thrives or dies you know, for the last two years, for instance, you've seemed to irk both sides of the fence. I right. mean, the PGA Tour and Liv both think that you're like rooting for the other one, which I, I guess as an author is probably a compliment if both sides think that you adore the other. You hear that. I mean, I see you on Twitter and geez, I mean, you can't post anything without somebody saying something to you. The great thing about being a historian, by the way, is Nobody really cares. Nobody picks a fight with a story in that often. <laughs> yeah, you're just, here to, you're just here to observe. And I got big old smiles. I'm like, Twitter's great. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it. I think it means I did my job. If no one really knows my true feelings, because I did not want to impose them on this story. It was already so overheated, and and it's symptomatic of modern life in America, right? Like, and look at our our political discourse. You, I'm right. You're wrong. That's it. There's no room to talk. There's no compromise. There's no nuance. It's just like you got to you got to pick a side. You have to dig in, and that's it. And I didn't want to fall into that trap. Like I felt like it was my job to understand Live Golf and the PGA Tour. What were their motives? What were their desires? Their wishes? Um, what were the the forces that compelled the decision making and all of it? And so, um, yeah, I, I I didn't I did not try to legislate my feelings onto the reader. And I think that's frustrating to, because everyone else in this story, to to some degree, has has chosen a side, and that's just what's expected. But that that's not my role here. And so I just try and lay out the whole 
the whole tale. Here's everything you didn't know. Here's a bunch of fresh reporting and new information to synthesize. And then, then you decide what you think. And, but yeah, certainly a lot of golf fans hate live golf and just it's very idea drives them up the wall. And I've tried to take it seriously as this very powerful force in the game and this sort of agent of chaos. Um, and if you take it seriously, I mean, there's a lot of things you make fun of, you know, around live, no question, but I didn't want to, that I'll leave that for other people. Like I wanted to look at this as a serious force that's, that's changed the sport. And I said that, you know, just last night I posted something because Bryson won live. Oh, that's what I read. That was, (laughs) yeah. Bryson. I was reading all the comments that followed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'm just trying to offer some context about why Bryson went to live golf. Obviously the money, no kidding, but there's more to it than that. And, um, but if you just counter the narrative that these guys are just greedy and they sold out and they sold their soul and you say, well, you know, it was also, he wanted a voice and he wanted to, he wanted to have some decision-making. He wanted some power, all these things that have been denied to him on the PGA tour. It, it pisses people off because they, they believe one thing and they don't want any information that's counter to that. And, uh, so it, it can be a little frustrating, but I, you know, I still endure. <laughs> it's like, this, this is, this is what I think about. This is what I know about it. Here it is. I'm offering it to you for free on Twitter. You can get mad and you can yell about it or you can just, you know, you can ignore it, whatever. But this is this is the real deal. And um, so, yeah, it's an in, it's interesting times for sure. That makes sense. Um, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, this what the podcast will really be. I mean, obviously, we're focusing on history, but my, my favorite part of your book is the research of the historical threats against, I'd say, the golf establishment. You didn't really dive into a podcast that I'm going to dive into later, which is the Western Golf Association versus the USGA. They used to be rival bodies that didn't feel yeah. the Western Golf Association didn't feel like it was being represented by the USGA. But you did dive into the threat. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of this that I didn't even know, Alan, and I've looked into it quite a bit is the the near creation of I'm going to see if I can get this right, the American Professional Golfers Tour, one of the yeah. horrible names for a tour. Share a little story that it's a fascinating history. Uh, the APGT, I suppose it would have been called if that would have happened. But tell us a little bit about the creation of the PGA Tour, maybe how that relates to where we are today and live. Yeah, it was important to understand that and, you, you know, I've been guilty of it. You know, we say, oh, this is, and I think you said something similar, like this is the most contentious period in the history of professional golf right now. But you go back to the late 60s, it was ugly because the PGA of America was still running tournament golf for the pros, even though it was kind of this parochial institution that its real mandate is to take care of the the guys in the pro shops and and the, the teaching pros at, at the club level. And so... It, as professional golf got bigger and bigger and more popular and, and Arnie arrived and Jack and Hogan and all these people who, who took the sport into the big time, it was still this kind of mom and pop operation. And they didn't really understand the the challenges and, and the problems of the, of the touring pros and, and what it would take to grow the circuit. And so the, the pros got frustrated, then they got pissed off and then they mutinied and much like Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka, I mean, they, they they created a breakaway tour and that became the PGA tour. And it's a great summary of what happened, to be honest with you. I think you did a really good job. Like I said, there was stuff in there that I wasn't even aware of and I've really looked into it. So it was it was a great it was part of my maybe my favorite part of the book, which is has no, like very little to do with live, but it was fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah, it has very little to do with live, but it does set this precedent for the player rebellion. And when the players feel like they are not being heard and that they don't have a say in their own governance, that's when problems happen. And, you know, Phil and Bryson, that was a huge part of, of what appealed to them about live golf. Obviously the money too, no kidding. We know that. That's a given. But it was this other stuff that drove their dissatisfaction with the PGA Tour and that helped that helped them to 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 splinter the game just like Arnie and Jack did in 1968. And so and then it comes full circle because in 94 Greg Norman proposes this world tour and the guy who helps destroy the dream is Arnold Palmer even though he you know he's the one who who set off this modern era of professional golf where the players wanted to have more control of their own destiny and that's what Norman was trying to do so that it's kind of ironic and and then Jack Nicklaus who was at the center of the creation of the PGA tour um, and then he gets swept up into the, you know, f- basically 50 years later through live golf, he gets in, he winds up suing himself essentially. I mean, not that's really, insane but. part of the story. I didn't know that part that part of it was that his own company, I, correct me if I'm wrong, his own company, Jack Nicholas is suing Jack Nicholas. And in part, they're saying that they kept him from moving to live in some kind of leadership role. Is that a fair assessment of that lawsuit yeah. and what yeah, came they, with they, it? And if he had done, if he had done that, he would have destroyed the brand and his own legacy and they saved him from himself. And, you know, Jack's now turned around and sued them for defamation. Like it's gotten really nasty, but you know, the, the, the Saudi money touches everyone, including Jack, who's obviously not, uh, we there's a grenade up. everywhere. It, yeah, <laughs> it is. Just, it's insane. It, it's kind of a, an interesting setup. You know, what happened in 1968, the reverberations are still felt 50 years later. And that's why I wanted to get into it. Yeah. And you do. You jump right into, I mean, Norman's story and the way you tell it. I mean, I think the idea, the original idea is a very Australian idea. I think it was Peter Thompson, five-time Open champion, had this idea of a world tour, but really had no way, to, I think, to make it happen. And I think Greg, with his panache and personality and you know obviously i think you you dive into it driven by one approval and the other monetary gain basically piggybacks on this idea and takes it to the players and your story if you could just share the arnold palmer story of that is just i mean it's it's so it literally got assassinated in one meeting right yeah, like it was- that's how the, that's how my book starts because it, it's it's such a great moment and yeah, I mean for Peter Thompson and and Greg Norman, golf professional golf was kind of this closed shop. They weren't really welcome in America. There was very few avenues to get over here. You could apprentice on the European tour, even that was problematic. And so they had this idea, this and they're not wrong that the game needed to be more global. It needed to be more unified, and they both worked at it. Uh, Norman, as you said, is more effective maneuverer. He got Rupert Murdoch, you know, a fellow Australian iconoclast, to put up $125 million back in 94 to fund this whole thing. And Norman's fatal flaw is his is his hubris and his ego. And so instead of consulting with all the other top players, he just kind of worked this whole thing out and never really got the the, the buy-in from Tim Fincham or the PGA Tour. And so it was 
at the Sharks shootout in 94 at, at Sherwood Country Club outside of L.A., it all came to a boil. Norman called this meeting to try and sell the world tour to his fellow players. Tim Fincham heard about it, sent a letter saying, basically, it's us or them. If, if you go with Norman, you're out at the PGA Tour. So the stakes were very high. And so they're in the, this this crowded wine room within the um, the clubhouse. And... You know, Peter Jacobs, I interviewed a bunch of guys who were in that room, and Jacobs said, this is 94. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. Like, some of us didn't even know what the hell was going on. You know, we just, like, Greg called this meeting, and, and so he's he's laying out this vision, but it's it's clear that you're going to have to make a choice. And so Arnold Palmer is then 65, but not a force in the game, but still, still turns up at a few, as a player, but still turns up at a few events to charm the galleries and hear the applause. And he's Arnie, right? He can do whatever the hell he wants. So he plays. He plays in the shark shootout um, and he just sits there listening and finally he raises his hand. He's like, Greg, have you ever heard of the big three? Which of course is great because everyone knows the big three. <laughs> and he's like, you know how many times we were approached to do our own thing? You know, we always said no because it would have been bad for the game and bad for the fellas, which is just so, it's just a great line. Yeah. Folksy, right? He throws a little folksy at it. But it's also like, they're, yeah, assassination is good. And Arnie's like, you guys can do whatever you want, but I'm out of here. And he stands up and he leaves the room. And everyone's looking around like, oh my God, you know, the king, he's just walked out. What do we do? And Lanny Watkins, who's a character in his own right, he says, well, if it's not good enough for Arnie, it's not good enough for me. And he gets out, he gets up and he leaves the room and everybody follows him out. And Norman's just standing there seething, just humiliated. In that moment, his dream is dead. And, you know, there's a really funny quote from Peter Jacobson, who was uh, one of my sources on that whole meeting. And he's like, you know, if if Greg Norman had won the Masters in 1996, there would be no live golf. And it's funny when you think of it in those terms, but Norman had this hole he could never fill within himself and this voracious need. He's very Mickelsonian, you know. This yeah, need that, and I think there's some parallels that will jump into. It's crazy. Yeah, and and of course, then Tim Fincham comes in, steals the idea, creates the World Golf Championships. And there's another funny scene in the book where Norman hears about it. It's the President's Cup. He 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 catches wind of this world golf championship idea, and he goes to Fincham, and can confronts him and face to face. He tells him to fuck off. Like it's, um, it's intense. Like, I, I love the PGA Tour's history of just saying, "Oh, you can't do that. That's awful." But we're gonna do it. Exactly, and they've it's their, brilliant. Their product right now is beginning to mirror live golf. One hundred percent. These elevated events with no cut, guaranteed money, small fields, like. They've they've adopted the live model, so yeah, they're they're ruthless about it. So anyway, yeah, that that whole scene with with Norman and, and Arnold Palmer, I think, is is just so much fun. And my first year covering the PJ Tour was '94. I was just as an intern at Sports Illustrated, and I was knocking around the events, and I was vaguely aware of the stuff, but it was way over my head. And I'd heard about this meeting, and I'd heard about what happened at the Shark Shootout. It was like folklore, it was like mythology. And then finally, you know, I got. I got Azinger, I got Brad Faxon, I, I traded texts with Lanny Watkins, obviously I interviewed Jacobson. So these guys were in the room and to bring it to life was cool. And it kind of was satisfying for me. I'd always heard about it. Davis Love had mentioned something to me about it, but you know, it's fun when you can, you can, you're ch- you hear something, you're chasing it, and then you finally get it and you can really bring it to life for readers. And that, that was a cool moment. Yeah. The Lanny Watkins, the Peter Jacobson and the, and the King I mean, I, it just makes for a tremendous story. In that, and you can just feel the breath go out of Greg Norman. I mean, because I've been in presentations that have gone badly, and you're just like, yeah. 
well, that could have gone better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. And that, um, you know, it's just a great image of him just alone in this room, you know, but it also like, it helps like give context to where we're at. Right. Like this is Greg's great revenge. Quite frankly, it's been one 30 years in the making. And that was my, that was my driving motivation on this book was to provide context and understanding because everyone, not everyone, most people in golf have followed this, excuse me, has followed this battle between the PGA tour and live golf. And they, they know some of the broad strokes. So, my value here is to tell people everything they don't know and to give it a framework for of, to understand it. And uh, so, yeah, it, everyone who follows the game has probably heard of the world tour, but it's just satisfying to bring it to life in a really dynamic way and, and to, to provide that, that, that deeper feeling for what really happened. Do you think that meeting played any role in the changing of the trajectory of Greg Norman's likability on tour well yeah i mean he became a pariah you know tim fincham he's a he's a little guy he looks like an elf but he's he's ruthless i mean this dude is he's a lawyer by training he's a political operative like he he humiliated norman he marginalized him he turned him into a pariah and I'm not suggesting that's the reason why he blew the 1996 Masters, but if you go to your workplace every day, you know that everyone hates you. Like that's that's not a comfortable feeling, and you know, in the pressure moments, I think the guys who play the best execute have a clear mind, and I think Norman always had so much negative mojo around him, and I think it helps explain why he booted away so many tournaments, and it goes even further back, like. And really researching his life, I didn't realize what drove him off the European tour was he wrote his autobiography like age 28 and took all these shots at the other players on the European tour and they hated him. And he had like, and he like left for America. He's like, I'm out of here. And like, he just says napalm, you know, the people burn bridges, Norman napalms them on his way out of town. And so, yeah, like eventually that's going to catch up with you. And I think it, it helps explain like this incredible physical talent who could, you know, win the Australian Open by a dozen shots at Royal Melbourne, you know, like unstoppable force, 24 under at the Players' Championship, you know, doing things that were hard to fathom. But when it mattered most, it was like he was his own worst enemy. And I do think that it's because he created this, 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 this like he had this, this stink cloud over him, like Linus. It just followed him everywhere he went. And um, it, it is interesting. You know, we will fast forward. I won't get into the PGL because I think it's nearly a Xerox of what we're looking at live. But one of the things I took from your book is that Monahan gets a lot of flack for how he handled the threat of live. But I'm wrong to am I wrong to say that his battle with the original threat, which was PGL, was basically textbook. Like he seemed to do everything right to nullify the PGL. And then I think there's some argument of how he's handled live, but maybe walk through some of the things he did to take, you know, the wind out of the sails of the PGL. Yeah. He very effectively killed the PGL. The problem was that he ran the exact same playbook against, against the Saudis, but they had a lot more resolve and clearly a lot more money, but no, the PGL it's fascinating because on some level, this book, you know, live and let die is, is the biography of an idea and the, the Andy Gardner was this London lawyer 
He was just an obsessive golf fan. And like a lot of us who, who watch a lot of golf, he's like, this sucks. I mean, the, the product is boring and bloated. There's no innovation. The, the streaming's terrible. The, the, the TV broadcasts are overwhelmed by ads. And, and so we just started thinking about like, if you were going to start professional golf over from scratch, what would you do? And he was a well-connected guy. So we had conversations with Roy McElroy, with Keith Pelly of the European tour and various other stakeholders in the game. And, he started noodling on these yellow legal tablets, you know, his ideas. And ultimately, he turned into this this incredibly detailed 116-page prospectus that was the Premier Golf League. And he had a lot of great ideas. And he was able to, you know, rain capital in New York, pledged $500 million. Uh, he was able to get the Saudis to pledge $500 million. Like, the, people could see the potential for reinventing professional golf. And it all started with one guy with a pen and a and a notebook. It's crazy. But, you know, he was an idealist, the gardener. He wasn't really a closer, and he just could never launch the thing. But he did go to the European tour and try and forge this partnership. And it would have been cool. I mean, it would have been a real competitor to the PGA Tour. If you had a better capitalized European tour, you had these team events, you had – you had investment in its old championships. And it Monaghan, just be different, right? I mean, like, I think the European tour just, you can't be the PGA tour. You know, you're, you're never going to com- compete with them or be an ideal partner for them trying to do what they do. And I think that's a sound idea. Sound idea to like, just rethink it all. And this is where Monahan, you know, he caught wind of, of what was happening and he came in heavy and he offered the European tour $100 million, which it desperately needed because this is now COVID when the European tour was struggling to pay its bills. And that was the birth of the so-called strategic alliance that is still reverberating. I mean, even today, there's a news break that anyone on the PGA tour who finishes 126 to 200th on the points list is now exempt under the European tour. So that the tours are becoming even more intertwined. And you can see a lot of American journeymen going over to Europe, trying to reanimate their career. And so um, Monaghan definitely killed the PGL, but the unintended consequence was the Saudis pulled their money out from the PGL and said, you know what, we can do this on our own. And they basically cut and pasted. It's all different. I don't know what you're talking about, Alan. <laughs> I mean, if I was going to steal somebody's work, I would make a few changes. But like, Just cross out an N and put a the, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, they, you know, 48 player fields, four 12-man teams, 54 holes, $25 million. That's right from the Premier Golf League. It's everything that Live Golf became. And, of course, there's some humans who switch sides. And, of course, it's not hard to understand how how this all played out behind the scenes. And so um, – and so I think that that Monahan's like, you know what? I he never even mentioned the Premier Golf League in public. Like he gave it no oxygen and it was effective. And he tried the same thing with the Saudis, but it it was a, it wasn't the same fight now. And uh, one of the to me the the dramatic moments in the book is this number two guy, he's the CEO of Golf Saudi. He's he's very close to Yasir Al Rahman. His name is Majed Al Saror and he writes this letter to Monahan in the spring of 2021. And says, we want to partner with the PGA Tour. We want to invest in the PGA Tour. Can we please sit down and talk about it? And Monaghan gets that letter and goes into a board meeting. And he's asked, you know, why are we not negotiating with the Saudis? Charlie Hoffman asked him this, one of the player directors. And Monaghan says, we do not negotiate with people who are trying to put us out of business and destroy golf. Like, we are at war. And that sets the tone for this whole era. 
It's a it's a very you know like U.S. foreign policy, you know, not equating the two, but we you know like we do not negotiate with terrorists. It's not a, calling it's, live terrorists, but I mean like that's the line they're drawing. It has the same echo, yeah, and you know. Monahan was this college hockey player and he's this pugnacious personality and the dark side of his personality around tour headquarters, he's known as hockey J and that's, that's, that's how it it felt like someone was coming in after the puck and he just started swinging his elbows and it was not a very nuanced reaction. And, and instead of seeing the Saudis as potential partners and, and this windfall, they, and they could be exploited and co-opted, he turned them into enemies and, Obviously, we're still feeling those reverberations now. These same people he villainized, he's now trying to negotiate with, you know, two and a half years later. And after putting the game through a tremendous period of strife, now Monaghan may yet salvage the situation if the framework agreement can be consummated. He will have unlimited money to invest in the tour and to grow the tour and to pay the players what he's promised them. And... In the end, it will have sort of worked out, but it will have been three years of turmoil. Many of his best and most recognizable players will have left on bad terms. Um, the the costs are incalculable, but um, it, you know, if you gave Jay Money a time machine, I'm sure he would go back to that day in April 2021 when that letter landed on his desk with a thud, and he would probably pick up the phone and call Majed, and and things would have played out very differently. But thank God he didn't, because there'd be no book. No. And you know what's funny is when you were describing all that about Monahan, I'm thinking almost the same thing about Phil, right? So like Monahan takes one trajectory, Phil makes his when he makes that phone call with you. And both have like this three-year character assassination to both of them. I mean, both have been strategically wounded by the strategies they took doing this. And I think both could come out a winner, weirdly enough. I mean, if you took, if you stand back a hundred years from now and say, did Phil accomplish what he set out to do? It looks like other than destroying his entire career and his persona and, you know, popularity, he might've accomplished it. The change seems to be in, you know, coming at least. I mean, two of Phil's primary point was that the PGA tour is not paying its players enough that they're sitting on too much money and that that belongs to the players. Well, as soon as live arrived, the tour opened the spigot and not everyone on tour got their salary doubled or tripled. So it seems like Phil had a point there. And his, his other primary critique was that the players do not have enough say in the governance. They do not control their own destiny. And the way it all played out behind the scenes with with Monaghan and Jimmy Dunn doing a total end around of the entire tour governance structure, um, clearly Phil was right about that too. And now the tour is trying to reshape itself to keep adding board member seats for the players. And now they've hired this guy, Colin Neville of the Rain Group to be the consultant to the players. And you know, you have the Patrick Cantleys of the world are an open rebellion, not open, behind the scenes they're rebelling. And they're trying to tank the deal. And it's um, Phil was clearly correct. The players needed more control of the organization. So yeah, it, it's come at a high, it's come at a high cost. And people have asked me, what's Phil's legacy? Well, that we don't know yet, because if if he winds up being a Ryder Cup captain down the road, if the game reunifies. Boy, uh, I don't know if I, can that happen? Anything can happen. Oh, that's true. I mean, 
if if you're a if you're a tour player and you were playing for eight million dollars and now you're playing for 20 million dollars and phil is an agent of change who made that happen they're never giving him credit (laughs) <laughs> There's no. Way. I mean, John Rahm has given him credit. Even Rory begrudgingly said, "You know, Phil was right about some things." Like, um, I think the you know, if Phil put money in their pockets, and well, history uh, is written by the winners, and so it's yeah. really deter. We don't know who won yet. Whoever right. well, wins, that's, well, that's what I'm saying. And <laughs> you know, Phil was giving up two things potentially to go to live golf, Ryder Cup captaincy an honorary starter at the masters in 10 or 20 years. And so if he gets those back, then you can say that it was all worth it for him. But if he, if he loses, I mean, those are two of the biggest honors you can have. And if they go away forever because he's just torched all these relationships and everyone's still bitter at him, then it will, he will have been proven right on some level, but it will come at a tremendous cost. And uh, so we don't know how those are going to play out, but I, I would say Phil has been somewhat rehabilitated, but uh, there's certainly people who are never going to forgive him, and that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a question. It goes back to your last book, the unauthorized biography on Phil Mickelson. And I think we, you know, the scary mofos comment goes into it. But do you, do you think it's possible that your talk with Phil, the, you know, the subsequent excerpt on the Fire Pit Collective, and then your book... Do you think there's any way that it played a role in Mickelson joining Liv? In other words, did he, by going public, effectively force himself into a decision that he had to go to Liv and that the PGA Tour was no longer on the table? I've thought about that. I mean, the more I've learned about Phil, he was so in deep with Liv Golf. And, you know, they call him one of the the four founding members of the tour. I think he was going no matter what, but it definitely clarified the decision for him because it was, he had reached a point of no return and, and going back to the PJ tour was probably not an option. Maybe legally it was, but emotionally and practically, um, you know, he was, he was suspended by the tour for a year. And um, so it pretty much forced his hands, um, which is, Again, I, I think he was going. He's going to go live no matter what. The money was too big, and beyond that, this sense of of validation and and being celebrated as this agent of chaos is so important to Phil. And in reporting this this new book, I learned a lot about Phil's role, and it's just it, it bears repeating because it's so crazy. He was the biggest advocate for the Premier Golf League, and. I try not to put too much Phil in this new book because I don't want to feel like a sequel, but some of his cameos are hilarious. So like in this period where where Keith Pelley of the European Tour is trying to decide, do we go do we go with the Premier Golf League or do we go with the PGA Tour? You know, he he had to choose. And he said, I purposely did not solicit the input of any top American players. I want I wanted to be from a very Eurocentric standpoint. It's like only one guy called me your boy, Phil, and Phil's like, Keith, you're a visionary. You got to go to the Premier Golf League. Um, Everyone will sign, including Tiger. Just do it. Like he's blowing all the sunshine up his ass. And it's just so funny. Now, maybe Phil was right because the European tour has been relegated to this, you know, essentially this role as a feeder tour. And they could have been a powerful force with the Premier Golf League concept and all the outside investment i mean phil might have been right about that one too but ultimately they didn't do it and as soon as 
the Premier Golf League starts to fizzle. Phil goes all in with the Saudis. And now he's the biggest booster and he's recruiting guys for live and he's all in with the Saudis. But simultaneously, he goes to Silver Lake Capital, this big, this big private equity firm in New York. And he's like, guys, I have an idea. Let's do our own breakaway tour. And tries to sell them on a tour in which the players would own equity. And Phil is working three sides of the street simultaneously. And he's also still going back to the PGA Tour and trying to advocate for change on the PGA in case he stays there. I mean, he is just in the middle of everything. So I think the the takeaway is that Phil needed he needed the change. He needed the juice of being the guy who was celebrated as transforming professional golf. And after decades of being squashed by Dean Beeman and Tim Fincham and Jay Monahan and being not listened to and ignored and not having a say, like he just wanted that validation so deeply. And so it's very much like Greg Norman, as we touched on. Yeah. I mean, he went from a guy who, wears a black hat to being the guy in the black hat, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a wild heel turn for sure, but it has to be the most historical turnaround in popularity in, in, well, definitely golf history. I can't think of another example. That's that polarizing. I mean, he was beloved by people, you know? Yeah. But I don't know if it's, if you can only say that in the past tense, because you know, the guy made a huge run of the masters this year and I was out there and it was a Phil love fest. You know, the, the fans had been very ambivalent towards him earlier in the week. You know, he, he had missed a previous Masters. He was in exile. And there was it was a very tense, you know, kind of the, in some ways, Augusta this year was the first major of the live era. Like, obviously, they'd played the two Opens last summer, but live had just launched and no one, no one was still struggling to make sense of it. And now nine months had gone by and there'd been all this, the lawsuits, the acrimony, the the battle over world ranking points. Like it all come to a boil at, and and Augusta, they were trying to come back together and make nice. And so no one knew how to react to Phil. But by Sunday afternoon when he was making birdies through Amen Corner, people are losing their minds. And so I mean, look at Tiger Woods. He's put the game through as much or or more than Phil Mickelson. And it's been, you know, Phil's Phil's sin is greed, right? Or maybe lust for power. Tiger has other sins, and they've played out on the back page of the New York Post. And, um, you know, there's the sex scandal, there's the DUI, there's the car accident. I mean, Tiger's actually endangered other people's lives, and certainly his own. I mean, Phil's just been all about the money and, and the greed and and the juice. But um, I think you could safely say that, that what Tiger's put the game through is at least as bad as Phil's. And he's never been more beloved. I mean, the redemptive power of sport remains, and the American people are forgiving for to a large degree. And so, I don't know if we can say that that Phil is is now has given up all the love because if he makes another run at Augusta, yeah, like, all, all bets are off. Well, you know, I've said on on Twitter, I got, I got some hate for it, but I just said. Uh, you know, with the the latest news with the uh, world ranking points, not a- any going to live golfers. I, you got to find a way, and I know this people hate this because I only really care about history, and and I hate to say this, but history is made at the majors. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, nobody sure. cares who wins the Target Open. I mean, you know, fictitious tournament, but you get the point. <laughs> and my point is, live in many ways 
not always, but in many ways, has been good for the majors because now you have a sense of maybe good and bad or us versus them that we used to have with the European tour when Seve would come over here, right? right? It used to be, it's, you know, our tour versus your tour. And now all the best players just play for the PGA tour. There's, there's no sense of rivalry like you get, say, at the Ryder Cup, which makes it, you know, a fantastic event. And now you have these, this upstart tour and you have a group of people that want to root for them and you have a group of people that hate them and I think that actually helps make golf compelling long term. Well, it has elevated the, the meaning of the majors because, you know, Brooks Kepka, he wins Live Jetta and he says, I'm back. Everyone's like, really? Uh, are we sure? Like, we don't know how to assign the value of, of, of winning a Live tournament. He wins a PGA Championship. Oh, Brooks is back. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. What ultimate, does it mean? Right. It's the ultimate measuring stick. And, you know, like Taylor Gooch has had a monster year on live. He won three times. He won their season long points lists. You know, they're basically their FedEx cup. And after the last tournament, you know, he shot 62 to clinch that $18 million bonus. And he said, I think I'm one of the best players in the world. He might be right, but we're not going to know that. Or we're not going to believe it until he does it in the majors. Like he, if he goes and wins a masters, yes, Taylor Gooch, you're one yeah, of the best But players. he might not even qualify at some point to even try it. Right. That's what so that's what adds the the poignancy to his situation. Um, and so it's and that, that underscores the risk that you you have if you go to live. You know, Brooks, Bryson, DJ, Phil, they're exempted in the majors through 24, 25, 26 based on things they've won in the past and other exemptions. But a young player doesn't doesn't have those multi-year exemptions from winning a US Open or winning a PGA championship, whatever it may be. It's a much bigger risk, and um, you know Taylor Gooch has become the poster boy of that. But it is important to recognize both the Masters and the PGA Championship are invitationals, and so they don't need the world ranks. They can invite whoever the hell they want, and um, they can certainly invite a Taylor Gooch if he slips through the cracks. Um, and the other, and both Opens, you can, there's a lot of ways to play your way in, including old-fashioned qualifying. So there are avenues in but um it's definitely a calculated risk for a young player who does not already have status at the majors well i, I you know we had, there's so much we could go into i, I here's why you ha- need to read the book folks i mean we've hit on some of the historical points here but I, I it is very shakespearean it is i don't know if it's othello i don't know if it's hamlet i don't know what it is but the 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 pitfalls from, I mean, we didn't even dive into this. Like Phil Mickelson says, you know, they're scary mofos and like Liv's dead. <laughs> like that, that quote comes out. There's no way Liv's going to launch after that. I mean, your major pitch man basically said, you know, I'm working for these people if I go here. And then the next thing you know, they've got a tour. I mean, like that in itself should have killed Live golf. That's how resilient that model was. Like, you had to think it when he first said it, like, oh, that's, this is gone. Well, a lot of people did. I mean, that, that all came out the week of the LA Open at Riviera, and there's that great monologue by Roy McIlroy. Like, it's dead in the water. Like, who's going to go? They're gonna, Greg Norman's going to have to tee it up to fill the field. And he was speaking for a lot of people. But, you know, there's this cool behind the scenes. And one of the top live executives said to me face-to-face is like, you almost, you almost brought the whole organization down. <laughs> like... That would have been an interesting thing to have on the resume, right? Like, um, kill the tour. Yeah. But Yasir Al Ramayan, 
calls this um, this conference call with the with the whole staff, and he's a very soft spoken guy. He 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 has no hubris. He's the anti Phil, and um, and he's but he this was the one time, and he he got fired up on the phone. He's like, "We're launching this thing." He's like, "Get me sixteen players, you know, full speed ahead." And there's a funny quote from a live executive. He's like, "It was like that that speech in the Wolf of Wall Street where." You know Leonardo DiCaprio, and the whole room goes crazy, and they ran. They everyone jumped off that call like, "Hell yeah, let's go!" And uh, you know it was galvanizing. But yeah, it was fun to bring those things to light. Like, how did it really play out? I mean, the live people. So Phil's Phil's comments drop during the LA Open on Sunday. Both Bryson and Dustin released statements affirming their fealty to the PGA Tour, which is hilarious in hindsight. And the live people didn't even know that was coming. They were completely blindsided. They just saw it on Twitter. And so, yeah, it was on the verge. It was teetering for sure. But um, ultimately, Dustin had a change of heart, which. <laughs> I mean, Dustin really, Dustin Johnson is the anchor to everything that Liv has now, more so than Mickelson, because oh, he yeah, he's the was their savior. No question. And that comes through in the book because. They, you take away Dustin and that first tournament in London has no blue chip players. I mean, it's, it's almost a joke how bad that field would have been. Dustin brought the credibility. He'd just gone five and zero at the Ryder cup. He had just won the masters, you know, two years earlier, actually a year and a half earlier. Um, he's still one of the two or three or five best players in the world when, when he decided to make that jump. Um, you know, Taylor Gooch had flat out said, I'm not going if Dustin doesn't go because he, he knew that. And Gooch has become very impactful in this whole story. And then, you know, Patrick Reed and Bryson DeChambeau, who'd been in, in negotiations forever with Liv, they got scared off. Same with Brooks. But Dustin, being the first guy to jump into the water, convinced all of them to take the plunge as well. So there is no doubt that Dustin was the, the key piece. And then, of course, He's played. He's played great on live. He's won individual tournaments. He kind of that long eagle putt, that walk off in Boston was one of their early highlights. His team, the Four Aces, was super dominant, which helped the narrative the team played for people to kind of follow it and have one team where they they knew the name, they they knew the face. Like um, Dustin is is a monumental piece in all of this, which is hilarious given his his general attitude about life. He just doesn't know. Well, that's it. why he was the only one that could have done it too. Right. right? No, yeah. nobody else is going to make that. I mean, no one who like, yeah. no one that is like a pure thinker is going to reason with that and go, yeah, I'm just going to take this chance. No, <laughs> ch like it's like yeah. really the perfect chess piece in this yeah. game of chess. And also cause you know, Phil's polarizing Bryson's polarizing Sergio, Patrick Reed, Pat Perez, you know, there's a lot of spicy personalities on live, you know, Ian Poulter, like there's a lot of guys who some people hate. I mean, they, to me, they're, you need those antiheroes. They inspire emotion, but nobody hates Dustin even now. And he's just, he's just a likable character who had a, a huge amount of goodwill stored up with fans and fellow players. And so he was the perfect non-controversial non-controversial kind of uh, flag bearer and um even even as as we project forward like trying to put the game back together if if all of a sudden the live guys have access to the tour events and dustin decides to play some he'll be welcomed with open arms because he took he took the money but he kept his mouth shut and he didn't sue anybody and those are 
those are important criteria. You know, the the Mickelsons, the DeChambos, the Taylor Gooches, they they sued the tour and they talked a lot of trash along the way. And so it's going to be harder for them to be welcomed home. But, you know, the guys like Dustin, like Louis Wu's ties, and you, there's, there's others who just, yes, they took the money, but the, the tour guys are not that mad about fellow golfers getting paid. Like they understand it's a business. It was it was the it was the personal shots and and the sniping and the bitchiness that's what really graded. So how how live guys are welcome back into this larger ecosystem? It's really case by case. And but um, suing your former colleagues is is problematic. I'll say that. I'll, I'm gonna ask you one more question. I know you got to go. Um, I don't think I have to go. I, I think these people are standing. Are you up. okay? Yeah, let's go. All right. So. Well, let me rewind that. So, okay. So we lose, we have no more world ranking points. There's possibly a delay in merger talks as these parties continue. Like, how do you think this plays out? Like, I mean, the, the, the news of the stall in the merger talks and then the whispers of other independent parties coming in and potentially having talks with the PGA tour about something similar you know, where can this go? I mean, that is that the next book? Maybe I can't, we can't. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm kidding, I, I'm be, kidding. There'll be a new chapter in the paperback next year, but there's no more, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so first of all, it was never even ever a merger because the tour and live golf were not in negotiations. It was the tour, the PJ tour, the European tour, and the public investment fund to create something new. And Liv has always remained this parallel entity, which is a complicating factor in this. And you know, the 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 deal as it was billed was never that. It was pinky promises to try and work something out. There's nothing binding in that contract. There is no hammer. And and even it said in that document the Saudis would have first right of refusal for outside in investment that was aspirational that is not ironclad and so people in in the sports world and and in where the money moves around have realized you know what this is not a done deal let's try and get in on it so you have private equity firms in new york you have venture capital in silicon valley you excuse me you even have hollywood money through ari emanuel and endeavor um these people have been trying to invest in golf for years you know, Silver Lake, Rain Capital, um, these are big private equity firms that have been sniffing around golf going back to the Premier Golf League. And so they're now making bids, kind of unsolicited bids like, hey, the Tours has a benchmark. They want $2 billion of investment so they can pay the players what they promised them and they can reinvest in their product and they can they can refill their reserves. That $2 billion does not have to come from the public investment fund. They don't – the Tour – and I've detected a little more swagger out of the tour lately because they've realized, you know what, we can get $2 billion, no problem. And it's not, it's not controversial money. Um, it's, you know, us based established money. And the risk though, is if they bump the Saudis out of the deal that live goes back to being a fierce competitor, the, they still have the PIF checkbook and now Yasir and all the other guys are pissed off. Yeah. And I mean, so, does the lawsuit restart? I mean, this thing stopped a lawsuit. So the laws, the lawsuits were dismissed with prejudice. They cannot be refiled. So, so that was a huge win for the PGA Tour. And 
you know, when Jimmy Dunn went in front of Congress, the PG Tour board member, he said the messaging in this was totally screwed up. The, the headline should have been lawsuits are over. Now we're going to try and figure something out. Like for the tour, they were looking at $100 million in legal fees on top of having to drain the reserve to pay these elevated purses. Like they came to the table because they were running out of money and the lawsuits were a huge part of it because, you know, they wanted to depose Yasir who's essentially, a, he's almost like the secretary of the interior and of commerce. And, you know, he's cabinet level, even though he doesn't quite have that title, but he is in the Saudi government. And so the last thing the Saudis wanted was him to be deposed. That had already gone to the Ninth Circuit Court. It was definitely heading to the Supreme Court. You were, the tour was looking at years of legal battles, and they did not have the money for it. So Ending the lawsuits with prejudice was a huge victory for the tour. Whatever happens after that is gravy. And they have realized in this process, like our old-fashioned not-for-profit model, which dates to the 1960s, makes no sense. Like, look what's happening in other sports. English Premier League, on on down the, the line, huge amounts of institutional investor money are flowing into these sports. Like, let's get in on the gravy train. Now, if they can keep the Saudis but they can bring in some U.S. money, that's clearly the best outcome for the tour. Because now they can say, yeah, we're doing business with the Saudis, but they're just a minority investor, just like firm X, Y, and Z. It dilutes the impact, and it becomes easier to sell to fans, to players, and especially to United States Congress, which is heavily scrutinizing this deal, as is the Department of Justice. So that that's the dream scenario for the tour. They get the money, they dilute the Saudis, and then they they... they are in a better financial position than in the history of the PGA Tour. The risk is that, you know, the public investment fund likes to be in a position of dominance when it does the deal. They don't really want to be a minority investor. They like to go all in. And so if Yasir walks away and says, we're out, you know, go ahead, take take this money from from Wall Street, but we don't we don't want to we don't want to be part of it anymore. That's a calculated risk for the tour. But um I have detected talking to players in leadership positions and and people in Ponte Vedra Beach like they're not as afraid of going back to competing with Live Golf because in some ways Live has taken their best shot, you know, and the tour survived as long as it has Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, John Rahm, and Justin Thomas. Like that's the core of the tour right there. You can add Scotty Scheffler if you want. They, they could lose some of the next tier of players, and it, they're going to be fine. Um, they still have the provenance. They still have the legacy. They still have the distribution channels. You know, Liv, has, they did a good job signing players, but they've, they've yet to build a real audience. They, they've, their TV numbers are terrible. Their streaming numbers are tiny. And so I think the tour is getting a little cocky. Like, you know what? We don't really need the PIF money. We don't really need to fear live golf. And if they want to pick off some of our players, you know, who are good players but not stars, like we can we can survive that. So I sense like things are hardening and and it's gonna be it's gonna be tougher to consummate this whole agreement, but uh we shall see. Well, for the PGA tour, time is their greatest asset, is it not? I mean that if you go, if this takes, let's say they say it's going to take two years. I mean, it takes a year for the world golf rankings. So let's say it takes two years to figure out what a live or PIF agreement would look like. That's two years of live moving forward and having an idea who, what your competition is going to look like. 
versus just being one year into competition with Liv. Isn't that fair? Possibly. I mean, the framework agreement expires on December 31st of this year, but there is a provision where they can extend it. And someone who's very involved in the negotiations is definitely getting extended. There's no way we're going to be get this done by December 31st. Time is so, their greatest asset. Yes. Although it also gives Liv a chance to keep going and to, and to maybe grow its audience. Like very cleverly, you know, Liv is their 24 schedule. It's much more international. There's, there's eight events, um, and, and the new markets include Hong Kong and Korea. Like the big, the, the best tournaments they had this year in 23 were in Australia and in Singapore, huge crowds took over local media. And I think Liv has realized when we go to these markets that are starved for big time golf, we can succeed. And so, uh, as time, if you give Liv more time to figure out what its product is, you know, they're going to have this Q school in December in Abu Dhabi. That's going to create a lot of interest. It also helps blunt, you know, the, the criticism of the OWGR stewards that it's a closed shop. I mean, they have players are getting relegated. They have this Q school and it sets them up to get world ranking points. You know, that, that decision was not forever. That was for the application that was on the table. Liv can reapply and say, look, you know, of the 48 players we had in 2023, we only have 30 going forward. We've a lot of guys got relegated. We opened it up. We we promoted people from the Asian tour. Like our product is evolving, and um, they're looking at adding another team or even two. You know, if they go up to say 56 players, like that sounds better than 48, and it gets you closer to the number of what's going to be these elevated tournaments. Might only have 70 players, and so um, you're right. I think. As as this plays out, the tour can regroup, and they've sort of weathered the storm. But it also gives Liv more time to figure out what it is and how to succeed and how to monetize it. Because the the piss play to get their money back and to make a profit has always been to sell the franchises. Mm-hmm. You know, they have twelve franchises; they might have fourteen. The number they've always thrown around is five hundred million dollars. You know, that's six or seven billion dollars. That's how they they get their money back, and then some. Um, you could see it becoming a thing. You go to these markets, you go to Hong Kong and you bring out all these billionaires and they get to party on the yacht with Dustin and Paulina. They get to play in the pro-am. They get to go to the parties and they're like, wow, this is fun. Like I don't, I can't buy an English premier soccer team. I can't buy an NFL team, but I love golf. I love the access and you know, Maybe they get the price down to $250 million. It's not that much money, you know, for some of these guys. And, um, you know, it could be interesting because people are pouring money into sports. And that's just to watch from the sidelines. If you buy a live franchise, you get to play with these guys. Like, you're you're going to go to 14 pro-ams and you get, you're going to have fun. And you're, like, inside the ropes. And it's much more experiential. And so you get to be Jerry Jones of golf. Yeah. Right? But, Up there in the but, booth with big sunglasses on, driving no, in a Ferrari. But you're you're Jerry Jones and you're like actually warming up with the team out on the field and <laughs> God, like, love that. snaps in the fourth quarter. Like it's it's way better than just sitting in the luxury box. Like because golf you, you get to play next to your heroes. So um I think that I think that both sides benefit as if if this if they keep extending this deal and it just gives live more ch- more time to bake itself out. So what do you think? I, where are we? 
let's say a decade from now, is live still around in your book? I know we're looking in the future and no one's holding you to it, but like it, it's tough, yeah. right? It's not, I think it's tough to forecast. Yeah, it really is. Um, but I will say, Yasir Alramayan is having the time of his life because I've said this before on another podcast, but my, um, I have a cousin who's a do- obsessive Dodgers fan and he would pay like $15,000 to go to fantasy camp in Vero beach and take ground balls next to a broken down Steve Garvey. And, um, it was a time of his life, right? He got to wear the uniform. Well, Yasir is doing that on a much grander scale. Like he goes to these live events and he hosts a Tuesday night party with all these Bordeaux and he just hangs out with all the players and their wags. And then he plays in the pro-am and he plays like three holes with Dustin and he gets like a, you know, a tip on his long irons and he goes and he plays a few holes with Cam Smith and they work on his putting. Then he plays a few holes with Phil and they work on his wedge game. You've never seen anyone happier than his excellency at these live events. And, um, you know, he he wants to be somebody in the golf world. And those weeks, they go to these, like, you know, the Centurion Club outside of London. It's not a place where he's been invited to be a member. But for one week, he owns the place. And and everyone comes to kiss the ring. And, like, the value of that is massive. And so as long as he's in a position of power, um, you know, because this guy is, is the most – powerful person in the world who's not a head of state not only does he run the public investment fund he's a chairman of aramco which is the world's most profitable company yeah like it's crazy he's he is sitting on mountains of gold here he's like smog you know <laughs> in the hobbit like he's just on he's got all the gold and um so as long as he retains those positions i think Liv is going to keep going and going wow okay now, if uh because he loves it. It was his baby. The players bought into the idea. Like he put his reputation on the line to launch Live Golf. And by extension, the reputation of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, who was a very demanding boss. And those players validated him and they bought into his vision. And and you know, he he he's been telling players, don't worry about it, lives here to stay. And uh, so I take him at face value. So 10 years is a long time. Five years from now, I think they'll still be live golf and, and then we'll see where it is. Unbelievable. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alan. It's been a pleasure. We've talked many times, I think on Twitter, but yeah. first time seeing you face to face, saw the dog That's in the background face, a couple of times. Miles apart. <laughs> yeah, we're just on other coasts. <laughs> you know, I tried to get you out to Cyprus, but you said Pebble beach is a better course. So they wouldn't let you out there anymore. Apparently. Uh, no, I've been, I, I'm welcome at Cypress Point. It's actually <laughs> one of the few places in the golf where I go and I get a hug because the head pro, he was, he was working at Pebble beach when I was a cart boy and we've known each other for 30 years. And so I'm actually welcome at Cypress point. Nice. But I do, I do stand by my statement that there are more shots at Pebble beach that make your heart pound than at Cypress point. And I think it's a more, spectacular- oh, I don't know about that. I do. I don't know. That's another podcast. We don't want to bore your listeners. No, I'm sure they wouldn't be, but no. I. Uh, and do you live in the area? You live in the Monterey yeah, kind of area? Well, I'm, I'm right in downtown Carmel. Okay. Well, I'm going to be probably back. I think we're talking about recording the history of Pebble Beach in March. So we'll have to get around. Oh, it's going to happen. And I want to play I want to play your Bel Air. That the place looks yeah, amazing. Anytime. Anytime. Yeah. Just come. How far are you from Vero Beach? A um, couple hours. It's not bad. Everything in everything in Florida is kind of a couple hours when you're in the middle of the state, unfortunately. But All right. we'll talk about this offline because I'm going to be in Vero in um, in early November. So uh, book signing, 
Yeah, yeah, a couple. There you go. So, uh, yeah, come on up. Yeah, come see it. Okay. Come see the bell. This might happen. All right, sounds good. Squirrel hats, though. Give me the squirrel. I'll get you any. I mean, the question is, do you have a big head? I have a massive head, so all of them are like deep-headed. You know, I got a Fred Flintstone head, so I've got this. I need the big dome. I mean, high crown. Metaphorically, do I have a big head? I don't know. People on Twitter might think so, but no. In actuality, my head's an average size. I'll get you a normal hat. I'll get you an Allen-sized hat. Fine. Uh, Well, this was a great pleasure. Well, hey, I mean, I'm coming in after the BBC, so I get the BBC leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) They um, they were they're generalists. They they do not they do not know the golf history like you do. So this this was this was a fun one. Well, thank you so much for adding to it. I appreciate it. All right, Connell, do this again. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Bye. You can find Alan's book "Live and Let Die" anywhere where you buy books. If you ever find yourself in the San Francisco airport. Alan is also notorious for autographing some of those books for sale in the airport bookshops. Liv's full history has yet to be written, but in a very short time, we have seen its impact on the game of golf. On the PGA Tour, hire purses, designated events where the best players come together to compete. Now there's talk of team events. And then we have to ask the question, did Liv play a role in Tiger and Rory's new simulator golf tour? and or perhaps the upcoming Netflix live golf events. You may hate Liv, but its impact has forever helped shape the professional game of golf. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.